You seem like a guy that at some point in your life had a post that said there's no such thing as a free lunch then. You got it. That was one of the most popular slogans. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Figure out prices are going to change. Someone's going to lose who wanted the price to go up when it went down or vice versa. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Interesting People podcast. Today I'm joined by Walter Olson from the Cato Institute. What is a think tank and maybe how has that term lost its meaning? It is hard to say these days what is a think tank because anyone can call themselves a think tank, absolutely anyone, which means you have to look behind the label a little bit. There are established traditional think tanks that have been around a while, often in Washington, D.C., which have well-established ways of operating and we can generalize about those and have it mean something. But as I say, anyone out there can call themselves a think tank. In a perfect world, what would you define as a think tank then? Well, think tank is a group that's organized for the long haul. It is organized to put out research that is useful, not just for tomorrow's headlines, but in some way for others doing research in the field. The field started out with groups like the Rand Corporation, which specializes in defense and all sorts of government analysis and doesn't have a strong point of view. But what came along as the more recent model of the think tank, which changed Washington DC in many respects is the point of view think tank. And the Brookings Institution, for example, represents mildly left of center, you know, generally democratic viewpoint. The American Enterprise Institute, where I once worked for five or six years, represents right of center, but not tremendously so. And the Cato Institute represents the libertarian point of view. And that is distinctive. People know that libertarians stand for certain things. And in general, Cato's point of view, whether it be on economic policy or foreign policy or legal issues, which is what I cover, usually if you read it, you'll think, yeah, libertarian. I Mm -hmm. I see the connection. Instead of calling it a think tank, it seems like the policy studies. Most of the big think tanks have sections that work on coherent areas. Cato very typically has a foreign policy and defense shop. It Mm -hmm. has a group that looks at health issues. It has a group that looks at regulation. And and that's pretty typical because those who deal with think tanks will already tend to be slotted in, like reporters, for example, will be covering one of those beats. Academics will be doing research in one of those areas and will be much less interested in other areas. And there are also think tanks that specialize in only one of those areas. There are health policy think tanks. There's the Urban Institute, which does urban and race issues. There are a lot of environmental think tanks. And part of what keeps think tanks honest, if they are honest, which uh, they aren't always, is the idea that they are in dialogue with a group of other experts in the field. Writing about law, I always feel I need to remember to be credible with law professors, with judges, with those who are spending all their time thinking about legal issues, because credibility is the most precious thing you got in the think tank business. Once they rule you out and say, I can't believe the facts from that place or I can't believe the arguments from that person, you know, they know nothing about history, whatever the critique is, you can't get their attention back very easily. A good think tank, a think tank that works over the long haul, tries to make sure that it has credibility in whatever the relevant debate is, the debate about schools and education, the debate about housing. It almost sounds like the way that people think of tenured teachers. One of the original formulas was universities without students. And that, well, it captures a lot of what is wonderful about working for think tanks when they work well, which is that you can have the freedom that professors have to investigate an area that's of interest. You can have research assistants, and many do. You can have publication opportunities comparable to those of university professors without having to endlessly yeah. grade papers and, and do all of the other things that most professors see as a mixed blessing at yeah. best. And it can still work that way. And I think it often produces the best work when it does work that way. But of course, with the term having blurred, there are now a lot of people who are 
like journalists, except that the group calls itself a think tank, or they're like lobbyists, but they call themselves uh, a think tank. And all of that goes on, too. It's like the blur between blogger and journalist. Yes. And Cato, like most groups, finds that the format people are willing to read keeps changing year by year with social media. We don't have as many books as we used to. Uh, books used to be the coin of the realm. Mm. I've, I've written four books myself. Now, when I introduce myself to people, they say, oh, you're the Twitter personality, Walter Olson. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, you know, it is weird, but think tanks, just like other organizations, have to figure out what is getting read. And shorter pieces are getting read. Even interactive and graphic and meme things, if they can reach an audience, if you've got a chart, for example, which captures something about education spending better than a 30-page white paper did, then the tendency will be find how people want to discuss the issues that haven't necessarily changed as issues, but have changed the way people talk about them. You guys are doing the same kinds of research, but the output has changed. What's the audience of the think tank then? Well, the audience keeps changing. And I was only half joking when I said that I meet people who see me now as a Twitter personality and are not aware that I've written books because let's talk podcasts, for example. Cato began a podcast and audio series. I found that the listener interest in that was growing so rapidly that there was so much feedback. I get a lot of response to things that I've said on podcasts and it makes me want to do more of them. And with people consuming information in that way, with people doing their thinking about public issues in that way, you get led further down the path. So Cato has professionalized its podcast. We have an excellent professional who makes sure that we have more or less a new one every day. Like everyone else, think tanks are under pressure to keep up with the times on format. There are other pressures on them, too, because one of the longtime critiques of think tanks is you're just publishing whenever you get around to publishing and ignoring the fact that people need your information at certain times, like when there's a bill before Congress. And one of the stories told again and again was the think tank that came out with the world's most perfect paper on such and such a subject a week after Congress had already voted. <laughs> so, so that pressure to fit in with things like legislative needs, or is the White House thinking of an executive order, you better weigh in on it while that's still under consideration. That presses in its own direction, and you get different reactions. Cato tries to hold back from anything too political. We try to hold back from election cycle type things, but we do try to weigh in when Congress is considering legislation. There are other groups that go political. There are other groups that are mostly interested in influencing the congressional debate and will produce a type of product that doesn't have much shelf life necessarily afterward. Some of them move a little bit more toward a lobbying model of we want to influence legislation and we want to make sure that ammunition is in the hands of lawmakers. You have other ones, and I think what we do is more toward an academic model of make sure you're not untimely, but at the same time, remember that much of the audience is people who are still going to want to keep up with the issue two years from now or five years. Try to write for a longer-term audience. You want content that doesn't lose its relevancy after a certain date. Exactly. Our principle, and I think that of several other think tanks, is to try to be relevant whichever party is in power. You know, we will like certain administrations better than others on certain issues. You know, I've argued a lot with the Obama administration on issues of government regulation because they were usually heading off in directions that I didn't especially agree with. But I still tried to be relevant, both because they could incorporate some of our ideas into a plan that was not, I would necessarily have drafted, but also because the nature of politics is that good ideas might be picked up anywhere on the spectrum. And the Obama administration came out with some proposals that I was able to cheer. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, generally not one of the senators who is on board with Cato's ideas, <laughs> but she has come to our events. And that type of dialogue is very helpful, even if you don't reach agreement, because you get to learn what the most powerful arguments from the other side might be. We learn about hers and she learns about ours. Mm -hmm. Do you do forums? What are the events that you put on? 
on. We do lots of events and that also is constantly changing because in-person events used to be the standard and really the only thing you could do. You would throw a debate or you would throw a an author event if someone had a new book out in Washington. People would come out who wanted to learn what that author had to say. Nowadays, more of the audience for events is online, watching it stream. And that changes the way that we do it. It changes the number of events that we can have. I am having an event next month, for example, where Emily Yaffe, who wrote a three-part series in the Atlantic Monthly about university discipline tribunals. So it sounds boring, but it's incredibly important to... <laughs> Most for, important things usually can uh, sound a little dry. Uh, yeah, but for anyone who's been swept up in it, it it's an issue that's very important and where the federal role has changed a, a whole lot. She wrote a fantastic series of articles, having her in discuss what she found, but also to get into a dialogue about how could it be done differently? What is she up to next in this area? And, and general and author talk. We have an annual Constitution Day, always timed for the beginning of the Supreme Court term, in which we get in there and talk about the big cases from the last term, preview the big cases from the next term. Always draws a big crowd. Uh, we have begun a First Amendment series, which we expect to also be a big repeating series because there is so much interest in the First Amendment and Cato does so much on it. Have you guys more interested in providing context so that people can make decisions or influence decisions? We think that if we put good ideas, good statistics, well done history out there, that it will be used not only by the elected officials who are kind of clearly listening to us, the Rand Pauls or the Senator Mike Lees who already would describe themselves as following libertarian debates. If we put it out there in the right way, it will be available to everyone and it will have influence beyond what we can necessarily measure. Some of the things that I'm proudest of are when I discover only years later that someone was reading something I wrote and using it to challenge a bad policy or to put in a better one. And we often don't find out about those at the time. Oh, really? Pieces that I thought sank without a trace. I will find out. <laughs> yes, it, it happens in print just as it happens in, in broadcast. You put it out there. You don't know whether anyone is paying attention. And then you find out someone was listening or someone was reading who was in the right position to ask questions to their governor mm. or ask questions as a member of Congress. So you're probably my first guest that's been footnoted in a paper or something like that. <laughs> they still put it in my bio that I was cited in a major Supreme Court opinion in a concurrence, I think, by Sandra Day O'Connor, which is actually kind of fun because they write concurrences only because they believe something and not because they have to. In my case, I had written a lot about America's litigation problem. Why does America have so much more litigation than other democratic countries? And that was something that was, and still is, because she's still out there giving speeches, very dear to Senator Day O'Connor's heart. She wrote a number of important Supreme Court opinions about that, and she was the author of a number of landmark cases. And in this case, I think the topic was punitive damages, uh, which when we started writing in this area, there was kind of a free-for-all of, you know, just let the jury pick a number between zero and infinity. And before long, you had $100 million for a scratched hood on a car or something. Yeah. And O'Connor particularly, but also the other justices who served with her at the time, said this can't actually be consistent with the Constitution's language on excessive fines and things like that. Let's see if we can give better guidance to the courts. And they did. And a lot of the issues that I wrote about earlier in my career about the litigation explosion, the courts have addressed and have made better than they were. What is your background? How did you end up at Cato? What have you done in the past before there? First, I am not a lawyer, which makes it somewhat unusual that I spend my time writing about legal issues. My background is in economics. And whether this is strange or wonderful, I'm not sure. I've spent almost all of my productive years at think tanks, uh, originally at the American Enterprise Institute, then at the Manhattan Institute up, up in New York, where I spent 25 years and last eight years at Cato. And while I was at American Enterprise Institute, do my inevitable bit of name dropping, I was lucky <laughs> enough to work for Antonin Scalia, who went on later to be on the Supreme Court, and who was, just as everyone says, who knew him, a magnetic personality who could convince you within minutes 
suggests that what he was thinking about was more interesting than what you had been thinking about. When I went in, I was intent on writing the economic analysis side of what government did, what regulations did, what litigation did. And I soon stumbled across litigation as the area that people were not writing about nearly as much as it deserved to. And that's what most of my books have been on. But with working for Scalia and working in general in a think tank that was very rich in powerful thinkers who had very strong points of view, I realized that either I was going to learn how to argue back. uh, (laughs) And I'm one who likes to argue back. You may have been able to tell already. You know, I realized soon that what the lawyers were talking about was tremendously important that I wanted to be part of that debate. I began writing about law. The Manhattan Institute recruited me to come up there and it was a tremendous 25 years because Manhattan Institute, which was known especially for its book program of bringing on authors and telling them now spend years writing a book and we'll see if we can get the book to change the world. And it pursued that formula very effectively. But it was also part of the fabric of New York City. It was very close to the Rudy Giuliani administration because when Giuliani came in, kind of everything had been done wrong, at least according to Giuliani yeah. and, and a lot of the a lot of the scholars that I was working with, from the, the crime situation to the housing situation to the school situation, New York was in terrible, terrible shape. But above all, the business climate was driving businesses away. And Giuliani addressed all of those different things, but especially he addressed making New York a safe and desirable mm-hmm. place to live and, and to do business. And things turned around so that the city wound up with the lowest crime rate of major cities, which I can tell you is not what it had been known for when I got there. And that was a magnificent opportunity to see policy move from the printed page to being adopted by the greatest city in the world as policy. Mm. And you saw concepts like broken window policing became a bit of a cliche, which is if you can stop low-level vandalism from making people feel that a neighborhood is going downhill and it's becoming unsafe, if you can stop even things as trivial as turnstile jumping in the subway, you know, people entering without paying, you can remoralize the population so that they believe that the good guys are back in control and they will themselves begin shushing people who are playing the radio at volumes. <laughs> you know, that you will wind up changing the threshold willingness of people to begin committing small crimes, which leads on to committing larger crimes. And so the various things that New York did in policing, but also the various things that it did in pioneering new institutions like the Grand Central Partnership and the various others by which businesses were brought together to improve the orderliness and the cleanliness of various business districts. This all worked like a charm, the Central Park Partnership, and were imitated by cities around the country. Now, I watched all this while mostly being involved in other issues myself, but it convinced me that think tanks don't have to be irrelevant and off on the sidelines, that if the ideas are genuinely better and if the comparative ideas, what are other cities doing? Let's learn by the examples. Indianapolis, an easy city to ignore, was doing a lot of interesting stuff early. And we Mm -hmm. picked up on ideas that would originated in other cities and brought them to New York and said it would work here too. That is one of the most useful things that think tanks can do. Professors obviously can do it too, which is be aware of what interesting ideas are being tried in other places and bring the best ones here. When I got involved in Maryland redistricting under Governor Hogan, that's one of my projects, one of the things I made sure our commission did was gather the information carefully about what other states have done trying to reform redistricting. How has it worked? What are those different models out there so we don't have to invent everything from scratch? With your economic background, do you think that helps you with your data gathering, even though it's going in a legal field? Economics is useful for almost anything. And I recommend it highly, even if you're not planning to be an economist, because you learn a certain way of analyzing the data. You learn a certain cold bloodedness. Mm -hmm. It's terrible to (laughs) praise that as a virtue. But the fact is, once you learn economic analysis, you see through a lot of, you see through a lot yeah. of sentiment about, oh, well, it's a win-win situation.
question if we only, well, usually there are trade-offs and yeah. economics helps you identify the trade-offs. Probably it won't be win-win for everyone. Let's see who loses. You seem like a guy that at some point in your life had a post of the citizens this thing as a free lunch then. <laughs> you, you got it. That, that was one of the most popular slogans. There is no such thing as a free lunch. You know, if figure out prices are going to change, someone's going to lose who wanted the price to go up when it went down or vice versa. Well, and a different kind of thing I like to ask all my interviews, this question, what are you looking forward the most to next year? In the last year, the policy business, like the political business, has become so much more unpredictable. Who knows what we're going to be talking about? I, I used to have a sense that the issue I was working on was also going to be on the agenda six months from now. Now it's much harder to know because Washington has become so much more unpredictable. You might think I would be discouraged, but in a way, it's very exhilarating mm. because I work in areas like constitutional law, clauses in the Constitution that we thought we would never get anyone interested in, <laughs> like the emoluments clause. You know, whoever yeah. thought that, that you would get the emoluments clause onto the front page? Those of us with obscure bits of knowledge that we figured we would never get to <laughs> to use in public debate have now felt as if we are closer to center stage than ever. You know, I've written two pieces on the emoluments clause. I feel sure I'm going to write more before it's all over. Well, thank you so much for your time. If people want to find out more about you, where should they look? You can go to the Cato Institute, where I'm listed as one of the scholars. You can also go to my blog, which we haven't talked about, overlawyered.com, world's oldest legal blog, as far as I know. And you will find lots and lots of my doings. Or just, you know, we haven't talked much about Maryland policy, but I do write about issues affecting Maryland. And search my name on uh, Google, that's O-L-S-O-N, and you will find more than you ever wanted to read. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Walter. This was a lot of fun. Me too. Thanks.